This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. When is mandatory vaccination not mandatory? The headline on the Ford government's much-anticipated new policy unveiled yesterday reads, Ontario makes COVID-19 vaccination policies mandatory for high-risk settings. In fact, the policy requires hospitals and other high-risk settings to have a policy, which the vast majority already do, and to require frequent testing of employees who won't take the jab. What does frequent mean? Well, that depends. And this regime is already in place, for instance, at the University Health Network, and it's been in effect in long-term care for quite a while. And after welcoming this policy, long-term care stakeholders last week said, it's not enough. And they pleaded with the government to give them a mandate. What do you think? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Kevin Smith, CEO of the University Health Network. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure, Libby. Always good to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so, is there any difference in what the government announced and what you at UHN already have in place? Uh, no, there's not a tremendous difference, but what we put in place, I think, in large part informed the government uh, through the Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Moore, and it's been very successful at UHN since its, its uh, inception. Um, it, we're at about 94% vaccine compliance with obviously um, about 6 to 7% of people not yet vaccinated, uh, a small portion of those who would be medically contraindicated for vaccination. But each of those now compliant with our every 48 hours before your shift, you need to be self-swabbing, doing a point-of-care test. If the point-of-care test is positive, don't come to work. Go and get a full PCR test. And I'm really happy to say that it's been very, very successful to date. How many people are on that regime? About 950 at the moment. So, um, you know, more than I would like to see. I just also remind you and your your, uh, listeners that the um, directive put out by Dr. Moore yesterday was the minimum standard. And UHN, for example, our first priority, our motto is the needs of patients come first. So each organization, long-term care, hospitals, schools, the list goes on, we each have the capacity to say our risk is greater and we're going to go farther than this minimum standard that Dr. Moore enunciated. And I, I for one, am pleased about that because, you know, Princess Margaret Hospital, Canada's leading cancer centre, is quite different than maybe a small hospital in rural Ontario. And I appreciate having the flexibility to look at those environments, risk assess those environments, talk to our staff, and look at whether we're going to go farther than that minimum standard. Okay, well, that was one of the things that uh, I thought really needed clarification. Uh, so it it wasn't clear 
how uh, how an organization would put in in place more stringent standards and, and um, how they would be able to handle people who who didn't like those standards. I mean, you know, I'm assuming that say for a place like Princess Margaret, and there is no other place like Princess Margaret, that, you know, mandatory might mean mandatory. And if not, you can't work with cancer patients. Right. Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, is it a case where where you could say that's it? Goodbye. Or you have to you have to get permission or how how would that work? Yeah. So, as you know, because we've had the privilege of serving you, you've been very open about that. Um, we know that, uh, that every team member at UHN is a valued team member. We don't want to say goodbye to anybody, but we're going to do our very best to help people understand, to help us understand what that resistance of the last 6% is. Maybe 1% or 1.5% of those are legitimately medically contraindicated. And again, they'll need to continue testing. But for the rest, I think we really do have to look at each environment, work with them to understand why their protection and the protection of their colleagues, as well as the protection of, most importantly, our patients requires them to be uh, vaccinated. If but, some don't get there, then I think we have to look at what other options are available. With with saying goodbye being last, would you? is there any opportunity for redeployment? Are there any other jobs? Is there any opportunity to work from home in your job category? Is there any other opportunity for us to uh, think about people who might want to take a leave of absence until we see uh, more stability or fewer uh, variant cases or even a new emerging variants? So a last step for us would always be saying goodbye to a valued team member. We're going to do our very best never to get there. But you're absolutely right. Our first principle will be guided by protecting patients and protecting each other, the people who come to work every day at UHN. And the 92 to 94 percent of them who've already made the choice to protect patients and protect each other. Have you talked to your unions about this? We have our uh, human resource colleagues are talking with our unions regularly, and will continue to do so. And obviously, any changes would be in uh, the, the greatest degree of partnership possible uh, with our collective bargaining partners. I want to get back to the 900 people who uh, have frequent testing, and and I chatted about it a bit with Dr. Susie Hote yesterday. She was very diplomatic. Uh, Now, I'm uh, I'm just, do I have the correct number that in total there are uh, 16,070 employees at UHN, or is that short? Yeah, that's about right. You know, any one day, it uh, depends on who you include, what about learners, what about a bunch of other people, but Yes, I think for direct employees, that's about right. Okay, so to test 900 people every 48 hours, I mean, that sounds like a a significant commitment of resources, resources that that could probably be best used on on other things. Uh, Am I wrong? You're not wrong. So um, I guess two things. One, the government of Canada and the province have secured a very large number, I understand, of point-of-care tests. So our, our model is to provide those point-of-care tests to the 950 individuals. At home, before they come to work, they swab both of their nostrils, take the swab and put it into a test tube environment with a bit of um, reagent, Let, wait a little while for anything that's on the swab to get into the reagent, and then pour it onto a cassette. 15 minutes later, there's either one or two lines on the cassette. 
one meaning uh, no COVID present, two meaning that it appears to be COVID present. If that occurs, you call us and perhaps photograph that um, cassette and send that to our occupational health department. Don't come to work and get the PCR, more highest reliability test. So we have asked our team members who've chosen not to be vaccinated to make sure that that happens every 48 hours. But the tests aren't for free. You're absolutely right that right about that. There are, however, a significant number in stock. So we, we are, um, in a sense, we've already expensed that through the government of Canada and the province. So we'll, we'll use up that stock. And before that's completed, need to determine it doesn't warrant that continued investment or should those resources go elsewhere. Interesting. Uh, w- one of the things some of the uh, doctors that we've been speaking to brought up is um, maybe hospitals should band together to institute those stronger standards that you would want at a place uh, like Princess Margaret or at a, at a cancer yeah. center. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I know a number of hospital groups, specialty hospital groups who are already having that conversation as we are. Um, because we developed the um, model of testing at home and we've had such good re- good response and good compliance with it, we're sharing that very, very broadly. The number of people who've asked for our policies and my colleague Tamara Dust, who's leading our um, our occupational health, has literally been talking to people across the country about it. So I'm really happy that, that our experience is able to benefit others. And as they introduce it, they'll, I'm sure, share that information with us as well. So I, I absolutely agree. The more we can do this in a consistent manner, uh, the more equitable and safe that will be. Uh, so, I mean, bottom line, um, do you think this policy is enough or are you going to try to work around to make it more stringent? So I think the policy is a great start. And I think it takes us to where UHN has been uh, pioneering this in the last few weeks. Uh, so I think it's really great. And if everyone could get to 92 or 94 percent, that would be a great start. I think some of us uh, with this policy have the ability to go further. And uh, the policy permits us to do that. We're going to be looking at that very, very aggressively over the next day or so and come to a conclusion about where, um, is it parts of UHN? Is it all of UHN? Uh, do, do we need to go further? Again, guided by what's safe for patients and, and safe for our staff. The, the other thing I think we have to all keep thinking about is Every time we pass on now, virtually 100% of the time, the, the variant, we also pass on the opportunity for new variants. So the more times this disease replicates and the more times it's passed on, the more opportunity there is for other, even more dangerous variants to emerge. And so for us, it's really important that we stop this as quickly as possible and prevent that even more dangerous variant from emerging in the future. Have you had any cases of people who um, were not honest about their test results? Uh, not to my knowledge. So I have not had a single report of that from my colleagues in occupational health. Now, I haven't asked that question today, but I don't believe that's the case. We did originally have a very, very small number of people who were resistant to comply with the testing strategy. So they didn't want to test. I'm sorry, they didn't want a vaccine and they weren't inclined to do testing. Unfortunately, we had to share with them that is now a policy of the hospital. You know, please take a short leave of absence, reconsider that, and we hope you'll stay with the team by doing this testing. And happy to say that now 100% of people are compliant with our testing strategy. 
uh, before we let you go, I'm looking at some new numbers on healthcare workers who contracted COVID-19. And as of June 15th of this year, it was a total of over nearly 95,000, 7% of the total. And, uh, you know, most of them were P- PSWs who were yeah. 3.3 times more likely than doctors and 1.8 times greater than nurses to contract the disease. What do you make of that number? Obviously, very concerning. Our, our PSW colleagues are also are often doing the most precarious work. They're not always full-time jobs. Uh, often in environments that are not rife with with infection prevention and control, so you know there there are environments like long term care that don't necessarily have great colleagues like Dr. Hoda, who you spoke with yesterday. So I I think that is a very significant concern. We also know that many are new Canadians, and um, that within their local communities there may be some vaccine resistance and lack of trust for the system. So I think we have to continue to really um, focus on groups such as that and also consider the equity of their positions. Um, again, uh, if they're not working in full-time work, if they're required to work in multiple settings, all of those things uh, increase their risk. So I think we have to continue to combine education and, um, and outreach from trusted members of their, their own community and persuading people why vaccination is the right thing to do and why they don't need not be fearful of it and uh, and hopefully get them to the highest highest vaccination possible. Yeah, but, and and again last week um the the heads of the the big uh, long-term care associations who had been in favor of that approach said okay but now we need it mandatory. Right. So again I'm interpreting Dr. Moore's comments yesterday uh, as They have the capacity, absolutely, to say as a sector um, or or individually, the risk in long-term care warrants us going further than the minimum that Dr. Moore has laid out. And the minimum is a long way from where we were the day before yesterday. So that's good progress. I think now it's up to each of us to take that stand and evaluate our environments and put the needs of consumers first in the case of long-term care for all seniors. I, I certainly uh, support the view that they should be very strongly considered for mandatory environments. Dr. Kevin Smith, I'm going to leave it there, and uh, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are finding what you had to say reassuring. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Okay, I am going to take a couple of calls before we get to our next guests. Bruce in Guelph. Hi, Bruce. How you doing, Libby? Fine. I have a few concerns. First of all, the tax dollars. Like I understand, he said it's already expense, but it's still the bottom line is coming out of our pocket, no matter which way you look at it. The second thing is, how do we know that that person is actually the one that's doing the swab? It could be another family member, it could be a friend come over to do it if they're seeing symptoms, because they don't want to miss work, they don't want to miss pay. Also, it's every forty-eight hours. Within that forty-eight hours, they can contract it. And, and spread it. And once it gets in the hospitals, long-term care, wherever, you know how it's been spreading rapid fire. You just mentioned some numbers there, which were astounding to me. So I think this is, is not right. It, it, you should be vaccinated. And I hate when people say mandatory. It's not mandatory to get vaccinated. It's mandatory to get vaccinated if you want to work in certain sectors like healthcare and education. Otherwise, go find another profession that's going to allow you to not be vaccinated. 
Okay, Bruce, thank you for that. Okay, uh, let us go to David in Toronto. Hi, David. Hi, how are you today, Libby? Fine, thanks. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, the previous caller and your guest uh, covered off the thing about, uh, you know, people having other people substitute and take tests. So, um, the, I, I guess one thing I, I would like to say is perhaps not for this pandemic, but for future future pandemics, as people go through for PSWs, doctors, nurses, whatever, as part of their accreditation, maybe they need to understand to achieve their accreditation that they will have to take whatever vaccines are required in the future. And if they are not able to, at that point in time, when they're going through their accreditation, they're given um, a bypass so that they can say, listen, I have this type of a medical condition and I can't take a vaccine. So when people go into the profession, you either know that they will have to take it or they are exempt. Okay, I'm 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 not sure how that uh, jives with human rights things, but uh, it's an interesting thought. Thanks for your call, David. Okay, uh, we are going to go to our next guests now, and you heard Doctor Kevin Smith say that this policy is a good start, but it has been widely criticized, and we're going to do. Uh, to go to two doctors who have been doing that critiquing. I'd like to welcome Dr. Nathan Stahl, who is in geriatrics and internal medicine at Sinai Health, and he is also seeking the Ontario Liberal Party nomination for Toronto St. Paul's. And Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murr, who is an Ottawa-based family physician and a medical anthropologist who writes about health policy and politics. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Good afternoon. Okay, let us start with Dr. Stahl. Uh, you heard Kevin Smith say it's a good start, and he's taken it to mean that hospitals and other high-risk settings can go further. Why is that not enough? Well, I think we've seen, you know, let, let's be clear, Libby. Like, if you're talking about long-term care here, nothing actually changes from yesterday. Exactly, um, yes. Uh, you know, it's the exact same policy that people have been following. Workers have been tested since last summer on a regular basis, unvaccinated individuals get to take a, you know, an education course and go for regular testing. So there's absolutely no change. And in the face of that policy, and, and you know, long-term care workers have been vaccinated or started to be vaccinated since last December, we have seen outbreaks in long-term care and we've seen deadly outbreaks. So, you know, when we're talking about our frail older adults and other vulnerable populations, I don't think we should be giving you know, we should be making exceptions for that. We should be putting patients and residents first. And this is not a mandatory vaccination policy, uh, mandatory vaccination policy. This is, you know, there are many individuals who are going to be able to continue working without vaccination. And, you know, I, I don't think that downloading it onto homes and, and making them, you know, fight the ensuing battles that may occur with unions and, and legally is the fair thing to do. We need leadership on this issue to protect our vulnerable population. Um, I mean, I, I I get what you're saying about that. It, it's, I mean, again, there wasn't enough clarity. What we just heard from Dr. Smith was that, that he thinks that what Moore had to say will give them enough shade to get that done. But you're thinking that's kind of too much trouble for them and too, yeah, too much trouble. <laughs> well, I mean, we've seen this with, you know, the, the, you know, the, 
the resistance to uh, creating a vaccine certificate, right? They've said that individual businesses can have people present their receipts that they get for vaccination. But, you know, individual businesses uh, are not necessarily set up to do that. That's an extra task. It's an onus that's being placed on them. They have to seek out their own legal opinion. Uh, and I just think we need a centralized approach that puts patients first. Dr. Smith called it the bare minimum. It is just that. And when we're talking about frail populations like this, we should not be doing the bare minimum. We should be doing the maximum to protect them and to protect their lives. Let's bring in Dr. Kaplan uh, Murr. Hi. Hi, it's Dr. Kaplan Murr. I am um, sorry. Yeah, hi. Hi. So, I mean, from a family medicine perspective and um, from a community perspective, what um, was announced yesterday is not an announcement at all. We know that um, the... Uh, idea that people will go and have some extra education around their refusal to be vaccinated is not going to keep my patient safe when my patient, whether it's my patient who has cancer who goes into the hospital seeking treatment or um, her daughter who goes into school, uh, you know, encounters somebody who hasn't been vaccinated and then there's an uh, you know, an outbreak in the hospital or an outbreak in the classroom, um, it's not enough. And um, nobody has the right to put others at risk. And we know that, like, as physicians, when we started medical training, we had to prove that we had been immunized against measles and mumps and rubella and hepatitis. And there was no, there was no, oh, well, if you prefer not to, that's okay. We don't mind you putting patients at risk. It was, this is what's required. And so we did what was required. This is a situation where the COVID vaccine should be mandated, just as universities are right now mandating vaccine. You want to study on campus, you want to work on campus, you have to be vaccinated. It's not enough to leave it up to individuals to decide whether or not they're going to put others at risk. And we know that the um, people who are unvaccinated are the ones who are going to drive the fourth wave. If They already are. Close, that's right. If schools have to close again, if there are outbreaks in hospitals, if there are outbreaks in retirement homes, if my patients who have home care providers, like personal support workers who go to them, bring COVID into their homes, um, that is going to be squarely on the shoulders of the leaders who refuse to have the courage to mandate vaccines. It can be done. The federal government just did it. The provincial sort of. could do it. <laughs> They've done it, sort of. They've done it uh, without talking to any of their unions. And uh, on on Monday, I talked to the head of the Public Service Alliance of Canada, and he said, I have to see the details, but, you know, I, I, I could be on board with this. And uh, then today I saw him quoted as saying, uh, you know, punishing uh, a public employee who won't have a vaccination is absolutely unacceptable. So at the end of the day, uh, I will be very curious to see. I mean, Justin Trudeau stood up and said there will be consequences for anybody who doesn't, who doesn't have a medical exemption. But I'll be very curious to see what exactly that is. I mean, Dr. Stahl, what do you think? Look, uh, you know, I fully agree with what my colleague, Dr. kaplan Murth uh, has outlined. Um, you know, the, it, 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 this does need to be clearly thought out in terms of what the consequences are. You know, I, I personally don't think that people should necessarily be losing their jobs, but we need to be able to redeploy them to other jobs within the sector if they are available, where they can 
you know, continue working, but don't provide direct care and put people in harm's way. I recognize that there may be professions where, you know, or a bill where there may be, uh, you know, prof- where there may be roles where that's simply not possible, and we may need to support these individuals to retrain in another field. But I don't think because of the fact that we, you know, we, we, we need to be putting the well-being of Ontarians first um, and doing everything we can to protect them, I think we can think about carefully with consultation what the consequences might be, but the solution should not be, it's complicated, uh, we're going to throw our hands up and, and give these people an option to continue working with testing. That's just not acceptable to me uh, as a medical professional. I'm going to give the last word to Dr. Uh, Kaplan Mirth, um, about 30 seconds, please. Yeah, so we're holding a rally in Ottawa on Sunday to to talk about the reasons that COVID vaccines are required. And that's going to include people who are from unions, people who are um, teachers, people who are uh, the very um, vulnerable members of our population who um, are going to be at risk when there are people walking around who are unvaccinated. And, uh, you know, it's, it's incumbent upon anybody who has the power to require the vaccine to do that to take care of the community. So I would just leave you with that thought. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Nathan Stahl and Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth. Appreciate your input. Thank you. Take care. Okay, we are going to take another a break. No, it's our first break. And when we come back, we'll be talking to Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie on what the cities need out of this election when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is day four of the election campaign, and we have not yet seen a focus on issues important to cities. Mississauga Mayor Bob Crombie wants to change that. She's launched a campaign with the hashtag Mississauga Matters, and she joins me now. Welcome, Mayor Crombie. Hi, Libby. Thanks so much for having me so I can talk about these very important issues that matter to, I think, all Mississaugans, but everyone who lives in a major urban city. And do you think those are in danger of uh, being ignored? Uh, well, there's always that risk, of course. So uh, let me also put the put it in context that every year we meet with the provincial government at the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, and that happens to be this week as well. So yesterday, for example, I had 10 meetings with 10 different cabinet ministers to discuss issues pertaining to them on these same topics, and we we do end up briefing all the candidates for Mississauga, federal, provincial, because of course we have the federal election now, then we'll have the provincial uh, next spring before we go into the municipal elections for ourselves, but We do this each and every time, Libby. It's so important that we educate all the parties and all the candidates uh, on municipal issues and the and the issues that matter to cities. And of course, they're all nuanced, slightly different. But the uh, all the large cities, whether they they are the Ontario big city mayors or the big city mayors of Canada, we try to. Uh, uh, we look at those issues that we share in common so we, we can speak with one common uniform voice uh, to government. And I think that really helps move our cause. So, so we what are, do tend to speak. Yeah, I'm going to go over those with you right now. We speak with one voice. But of course, there's always the opportunity to talk about those specific projects 
pet projects in your in your own city. So, of course, uh, let me give you the big overview, and then you can ask me to talk about each one. So, uh, housing affordability, not just affordable housing, but how do you make housing more affordable? Uh, always transit and breaking gridlock. Those are very key. How do you build in public transit? And right now, especially because of the pandemic, it supports for the business community, especially those hardest hit sectors, particularly like the hospitality, tourism, restaurants. Uh, I will say the airport and the airline industry as well, arts and culture. Um, and then uh, we always discuss infrastructure and investments into rebuilding and revitalizing our infrastructure and, and sustainable infrastructure at that. And cities are always interested in what we call the new deal for cities, which is looking for that long-term sustainable funding uh, and uh, negotiating a new deal with the provincial and the federal government is and it- these issues they have in common. And the reason is, is because we're expected to build 21st century cities with 19th century tools that rely on regressive taxation, uh, which is the property tax base, user fees, gas tax, and then transfers from other levels of government. Let, let so me we're just, looking at something more progressive. Uh, I mean, isn't at the end of the day, big part of your problem uh, that you don't have enough power, that you're a creature of the province? Absolutely. That is very true. And we have a weak mayor system. I know that, uh, you know, in the United States of uh, the mayors do become the CEOs, and it's a very strong mayor system, but here we're creatures of the province. We literally don't exist except for the acknowledgement in the BNA Act. And, of course, uh, the BNA Act uh, was written, uh, you know, we were largely an agrarian society in Canada, and we didn't have large city concept like we do today. And, and now 70 to 80% of our population live in big cities, and we're looking for more progressive ways and more long-term sustainable ways to fund ourselves that is not based on just the property taxes, user fees, transfers from other governments, and uh, gas tax, etc. You've been asking for a vaccine passport. Uh, I did do that yesterday. Well, I didn't call it that. I said proof of vaccination, which I think is so vitally important. And more and more we're seeing whether they're retailers, restaurants, concert venues. Yesterday, MLSE came out and said, yep, you're definitely going to have to prove that you've been vaccinated or have a medical exemption before, or have a negative test before going into one of our venues and enjoy one of the games. Uh, and I think it's, it's obvious the time has come where we have need a secure way, whether it's a QR code or a barcode, of proving that, yes, we've had our two vaccines or we have a medical exemption or we're walking around with a negative test that's recent uh, so that we can enjoy some of these, uh, you know, uh, amenities, whether they be a concert or a sports event or whatever they might be dining inside at a restaurant. Uh, All those non-essential businesses are very concerned about this fourth wave that we seem to be entering. Look, the cases are up across the province, over 500 again today. I think back to a month ago when they were just, you know, 200 cases. Uh, We've already doubled. Mayor Crombie, what a lot of businesses are saying is it's one thing to have the physical proof of vaccination, but they don't want to be the enforcers. They look to a place like New York where it's the government that said you have to be vaccinated to enter these places. And here the onus, the onus is on the business and uh, a lot of them feel they can't handle that. 
I agree. We don't want to put any additional burdens on business. But I know that I've spoken with our local businesses and as has our Mississauga Board of Trade. And if we can make it easy, for instance, as you know today, to go into a restaurant or just about anywhere, you need to download that QR code, scan that code and answer those screening questions. Wouldn't it be nice to just scan your own code that says gives them all that information so that they don't have to bother to do that anymore. I think that makes it much easier and takes the onus off those businesses, in fact. And uh, they're looking at something like this, whether it be a QR code or a barcode that answers all those questions for them. Right. But do you think that it should be the provincial government that says you have to do this to go into uh, to go uh-huh. and have indoor dining? Yes, I do. I think it would make a lot more sense that if this was province-wide rather than by sector or, or by municipality. So Mayor Tory has spoken about the need for proof of vaccination, and we're not calling it a, a passport because I think that's a not a popular term. You know, I'm happy with immunization record, as we all have as children, to prove that we had our measles, mumps, rubella, polio, etc. shots. Uh, and you, you and I both know that when you're traveling, you're going to have to prove that you've had the vaccine. And there are many countries that want to want you to prove that you've had typhus and yellow fever vaccine just to enter their countries as well. So this is the newest vaccine that you will have to prove that you have had in order to enter countries or more specifically at local non-essential businesses, concert venues, sporting events, restaurants, retailers, etc. OK, Mayor Bonnie Crombie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me today, Libby. All the best to you. Yeah, to you as well. Okay, we have to take another break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk election talk. And the first one I want to talk about was this huge upset in Nova Scotia last night. And what does it mean for the current federal election? When we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. My original plan for this segment was to talk about some GTA writings that could turn away from the Liberals. But first, I want to talk about a different huge upset in Nova Scotia where out of the blue, unexpectedly, there is a new progressive conservative majority government. The incumbent liberals started the campaign with a 28-point lead. So what, what's going on and what implications does it have for the federal race? I'd like to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Jason Leader, conservative strategist and president of Enterprise, as well as Lauren Bozanoff, president and CEO of Form Research. Hello. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Libby. Hey, Libby. With Lauren. So uh, there have been some recent elections where the polling was off. I mean, was the original polling off or was this just a huge upset? Well, you know what? Um, You know, our final release said Liberals and Tories neck and neck in upcoming Nova Scotia provincial elections. So it it was somewhat uh, forecast, but... The, the strange thing was the quickness of the change in public opinion, and it, it did occur right on the last few days uh, of the campaign. I think that's what took everybody by surprise, was the quickness of the change. 
and, and, and you know, because the parties were so close, and, and because the change was just a couple of points with the, you know, first-past-the-post voting system, you can get a majority from that. Uh, Jason, do you agree that that's what happened? Most of what Lauren said, I agree with, actually. So, so I, I've got a little bit of a window into this because two of my colleagues were out there helping run the campaign. And I, I just think it's just an incredible result. And a lot of it, I think, is testament to Tim Houston. I mean, that guy's, that guy's going to be a political force for quite some time. So most of what Lauren said, I agree with. So um, the internal polling, and this is, first of all, I will say to, to Lauren's point, a couple of pollsters did, came pretty close. You know, I didn't see four. I didn't see your last numbers, Lauren. Main Street, I think, added added as well in the same in the same ballpark, sort of a neck and neck within a couple of points race. The Tories knew in the target seats um, that they were within a couple of points about ten to fifteen days ago. So halfway through the campaign, they knew this. They were sort of gaining on the Liberals, and it was going to be a close race. So I do disagree with the contention that it changed over sort of overnight. I, I will say that um, nobody thought. Um, that that sort of four or five point swing in the last week was likely, and everyone was worried from the conservative perspective anyway, that the liberals were going to do a lot better job of getting their people out because that's historically what's happened in Nova Scotia. So I think Lawrence mostly got it right. I would just say that from a Tory perspective, they really thought that they were probably going to win a minority parliament where they were really going to be close. Like it was going to be 2018, 27. And they ended up winning a couple more than that. So, um, and, and, you know, it was just a tremendous night for the North Nova Scotia Tories. Uh, Lauren, I mean, uh, do you, what do you, what do you make of it? Well, you know, we did do a final poll and it was with it well within the margin of error. We're only one or two points off. Um, but just remember that uh, with this political system that we have first past the post, if you can edge out by even one or two points, um, you can get a majority government. And in, in the end, it looks like the, you know, the Tories beat the Liberals by 2%. You wouldn't think that would give you a majority, but it does if it's evenly you know, distributed across the province. So I think that, that's part of the story here. Okay, let me give the numbers out to people. I'm wondering what they think of this as as we see if there's anything that this has to say about other elections that are on right now. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We are talking about a, a totally unexpected change in Nova Scotia. You know, we went into, there was a provincial election expecting the Liberals to be re-elected. Other provincial governments that have had elections during the pandemic have just been returned to power, rewarded for competent management of the pandemic. But wow, in Nova Scotia, that didn't happen. Apparently, there were some other reasons. There were some stumbles by Ian Rankin, the very young and very new premier, uh, former premier. Uh, but it, again, this was just completely unexpected. And Jason, do you think that this will, uh, you know, inform anything that happens with the current election? <laughs> well, it's certainly not the headline that Mr. Trudeau was looking for this morning uh, when he called this election a couple of days before the, the Nova Scotia vote. So just a couple of things. Let's let's just be clear on this, though. I think it's important to say, first of all, Justin Trudeau is going to win the majority of the votes in Nova Scotia in the federal election to be held a month from now. And he's going to win most of the seats in Nova Scotia as well. So let's just get that clear because um, there will be people that sort of mistake the two. It's It's different for a lot of different reasons. We don't have time for that, but that's what's going to happen. But I will say this, Mr. Trudeau had sort of hoped for some wind in his sails. 
He had hoped for another liberal sort of premier to be reelected. He had hoped that this streak of essentially incumbent governments being reelected um, uh, would would happen. This narrative is sort of like now you got people, other people in Canada, sort of looking and saying, "Oh, I guess we can replace the government," you know. And and the truth is, he hasn't had such a hot first couple of days here. He's a little bit sort of stuck in the mud. And so, you know, you start to look at, you know, are we going to have a three-way race here federally? And I, I actually think we are. I think Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh um, have a little bit of momentum. I think Mr. Mr. Trudeau is sort of flash, you know, sort of floundering around a little bit. So we're going to get a, a pretty tight three-way race, I think, by the end of this thing. Lauren Bosanoff, uh, I, I mean, my impression of the first few days is that uh, the issue of mandatory vaccination, it was really a wedge issue. And I think that for a lot of people, it's very important. And a lot of those people for whom it is very important, uh, you know, are, are, you know, would be natural conservative voters otherwise. Yeah. So, so you know what, that, we'll, we'll see what happens. The, the, the polls are showing a tightening race federally. And in fact, we actually have the Tory slightly ahead of the Liberals. But generally, the polls are showing the Liberals have a small lead, not the huge lead they had all summer long. Um, and then, you know, there was the issue of why are we having this election that was kind of dominating things on the day the election was called. But after that, you're right, tensions turning to the uh, COVID and the, vac- you know, the vaccination issue and uh, the mandates for it. So if that, in fact, could become an issue, we saw an anti-vaxxer yelling at the, at the, at the prime minister. And he was probably liking that because, you know, he's in favor of some of these mandates. So uh, he wasn't shying away from that. But we have to see now how that actually plays out. And uh, Lauren, um, we were starting this by talking about some GTA ridings. How many GTA ridings do you think uh, are, you know, poised to turn if it turns out that way? Well, there's about 10. There's a few in the, in the actual, in, in the 416. And then, uh, so four or five there. And then there's, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, actually, in the 905. The 905 is, is most vulnerable to switching. Uh, it, it's, it's hard for the Tories to make inroads, generally speaking, federally in 416, although they could this time around. Uh, 905 is, is, is always a battleground. And they're just the writings you expect um, to be up, up for grabs, Oakville, uh, Whitby, Vaughn, so forth, Richmond Hill, all those uh, could easily flip to the Tories. Jason, uh, what are you doing about those writings that uh, Lauren has flagged? Well, I mean, there's two, there, there's two or three things here, right? You got message, you got messenger, and you got sort of on the ground organization, right? So I actually, I think, I think Lauren's got the analysis right. I think it is a bit of a tightening race in the 905 place that you can. You know, those seats are number one. He's been able to attract really good candidates. One of my former colleagues, for example, sort of Melissa Lansman, openly gay, young uh, Jewish woman who is, you know, I think setting the world on fire up in, up in, up in Thornhill. Um, really good organization. I think O'Toole, um, I think he's going to surprise people because, uh, you know, he's been told all summer, everyone's been told all summer when they're just, they don't know O'Toole for other than his own family and neighbors. No one really knows who he is. And, and you know, they've been told all summer by sort of the media, I would say, like, yeah, this guy's a dud. And he's come out and he's, you know, the truth is he looks pretty good. He's, he's fine. He can explain himself. He's, you know, he's got a wife and kids. He looks like he's 
you know, sort of got some policy behind him. He dropped a pretty good platform. So anyway, it's message, it's messenger, it's organization. And yeah, these, these ridings are going to go, go down to the, the, down to the wire. And with Singh doing a slightly better, I mean, Canadians are, are rallying around Singh a little bit. Canadians like him. And that's really bad news for Mr. Trudeau. Uh, yeah, I, I have to say, just watching closely on the first day, and, and I know that out of the three of them, Singh looked the, the most like a, a person, a regular person. He certainly was very comfortable that day. There's and, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, that, that has nothing to do with policies. But, uh, Lauren, have you done polling on who would make the best leader or who is most likable and all of that stuff? And have you seen any changes in that yet? No, we haven't recently, but, you know, I think he's under the least amount of pressure also because, you know, the, 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 you know Trudeau's under a lot of pressure because he called the election. And, and O'Toole's definitely under a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of pressure, too, to produce. So that they have, I think, the most at stake in, in what happens. You know, leader of the third party, or in this case, perhaps the fourth party, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's not as much at stake for, for them. You know, they're, they're always trying to become the official opposition or whatever, you know, trying to move up. But I don't think he has the pressure, and because of that, he's probably more relaxed. And uh, wouldn't some of those uh, writings that are liable to turn in the 416, wouldn't they go to the NDP? So you see, this is where Singh has not made up much ground, is in, is in, in fact, the, the, the GTA. We have them only picking up one seat, uh, Davenport. Um, the other seats, especially the downtown ones, you think would, would be flipping NDP, but so far it looks like the Liberals are holding those. Um, even Toronto-Danforth? Well, it's hard to, hard to, hard to predict each individual riding, but if, if, if the regional swing stays the way it is, then that one would not flip to the NDP. You're right, I'm sure it's a targeted riding for the NDP, but um, it's not uh, flippable right now, it looks like. And, and Davenport, of course, was NDP. Well, as was Danforth quite a while ago, uh, it's, I mean, provincially, there were a couple of writings that surprisingly went NDP that usually go for the Liberals. Does that have any bearing or is it two very separate things? I think right now it's kind of separate. I mean, it does speak to the fact that, you know, each writing has its own DNA and some writings have, you know, more of an NDP or a Liberal DNA and they tend to go that way, both federally and provincially. I don't think there's a direct link between the provincial and the federal uh, situation at the moment. Jason, uh, is that what you are expecting, that, that only one of the 416 ridings uh, turns against the Liberals? Yeah, Mr. Mr. Singh's got to make up some more, some more ground for sure. And uh, the Liberals, uh, what, the, what Mr. Singh has to guard against is near, in the last 10 days of the campaign, uh, the Liberals will say, A, it's closer than you think, B, I'm the only way to stop uh, Mr. O'Toole from being prime minister and see if you're thinking about voting for the NDP, you might as well vote for your service. So that's the, the traditional sort of liberal closing play. And, and Mr. Singh has to do, he has to build up enough, a reservoir of goodwill to sort of in those last 10 days, be able to send that off and say, uh, you, you gotta vote for me. You know, I'm their only true real progressive option. You're probably disappointed in Mr. Trudeau. The only way to sort of send him a message is, is to vote for me. So it's going to be a very interesting 10 days with that kind of play that I've just described going off in, in real time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, do either of you have a sense of what the ballot question will turn out to be? Lauren? You know what? It's, it's really hard to predict because this is the election that no one wanted. 
there was no, you know, there was no minority government that was defeated in the House, and there was actually an issue or you know a bill underway or something. So it's it's kind of like a convenience, the convenience vote, and um, we have to wait and see. I think what what the ballot question, if there ever is one, uh, actually develops in this campaign. Yeah, I was I was just going to say just to build on that, uh, Libby. Just to, we don't know yet. But we do know what the what the what the three main parties want it to be, right? So we want the the, the liberals want it to be sort of we kept you safe before, uh, you know, trust us to do it again. Uh, the Tories want to want you to think, be thinking about, you know, who's best to you know sort of get us back on track, create jobs, protect the economy, sort of figure this thing out going forward. The NDP wants you to be thinking about. If you're disappointed in Trudeau, there's only one way. We're the real guys that can that can actually bring a sort of progressive change. We're going to tax the rich. So we don't know which of those three narratives is going to be dominant, but we do know what they want to be each of the three parties. Right, but it might end up being something else entirely. Usually it's leadership. Usually it's who do you want to relieve this place. I mean, fundamentally, most, most ballot questions, most elections hinge on... I don't remember uh, since the 88 trade election. I don't think there's been one that's hinged on an issue, you know, in it, well, one singular issue. Mostly it's just, you know, who do you want to run this place? And is there any kind of sense that if this big upset could happen in the province of Nova Scotia, it could happen federally? Or is that just out of the pale? <laughs> there are some people in that federal war, liberal war room. I mean, they're all they're all sort of taking a shot of whiskey and stealing themselves morning it will wake them up for sure they're they're they're, you know it's got their attention no doubt about it um but you know of course this could happen um absolutely 100 percent. the liberals as lauren said i mean you know i mean they they walked through summer with a 10 point lead he's got the tories ahead right now let's say just say they're statistically tied or tories are a couple points down or a couple points up you're talking about a close election and that means that it matters you know the campaign matters mr trudeau was able to pull out a tight election at the end of last time with a really superior performance in the last 10 days. I don't know if he's got another one in him. We'll see. Well, and it's interesting, of course, uh, what people were predicting as it was called is that it may end up with just another minority, which <laughs> I don't know how that's going to look on him. I mean, it'll be a massive failure. It's just a massive failure if, if that's what happens. Lauren, what are you going to be looking at next? Well, you know what? Um, campaigns do matter, and it, this is looking like a really, really uh, tight campaign. So uh, I think we have to look at just the horse race, the numbers, and and we haven't really talked about it, but um, the seat distribution, because the horse race is great, and, you know, who's ahead by one or two points. People forget that the Liberals lost the last election in terms of the popular vote, um, but they still got uh, more seats than, than the Tories. So... Um, it's really the seats that count, and it's really important to start doing those seat counts, um, given how, how close this race is going to be. Hmm. And, and Jason, uh, what are uh, the Conservatives going to be focusing on for the next little bit? Same as, same as Lauren just outlined. So you know, the Conservatives to win have to win those, those suburban and exurban seats in the 905 and the greater Vancouver area. You can't win the election without those. To Lauren's point, like, you know, the last time in Ontario, the Liberals, I think at 42, the Tories were in the high 20s. Pollsters have come out, so that's completely, so that's the last election. It's a lot tighter right now, which means, you know, you're competitive in a lot of those 905 seats. So, I mean, you're focusing your attention directly and squarely on those two areas of the country because you can't win the election if you don't win those areas. 
Okay. Uh, I think that sets us up well uh, to look at the rest of the campaign. Very interesting insights. Thank you so much, Lauren Bosnoff and Jason Leader. Thanks. Thanks, Libby. See you, Lauren. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.